Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Stephen Groom. Okay, so that's better, isn't it? So today I want to look at Daniel chapter 5. And we know that uh, who is the good shepherd in Psalms 23? As we look at Easter and the death of Jesus, we also know that Jesus is the best shepherd, isn't he? Many people try and lead us. Satan wants to lead us through people. But the Lord... We all want to say, the Lord is my shepherd, don't we? We want him to lead us. Um, So Jesus is the true shepherd. Also, in Daniel chapter 9, 27, it says that it prophesied of Messiah the Prince. So in, in the Bible, God has many names. Jesus has many names. And two of them is the shepherd, as we saw in Psalms 23, And he's the Messiah. The Hebrew word for Messiah is also translated as anointed one. Okay, He's the anointed one. When was Jesus anointed? According to Daniel 9, is in 27 AD when Jesus was baptized. Yeah, And we want to look at that in the, the book of Daniel. I want to show you where a very unusual person is also anointed and given messianic titles. He's also called the shepherd. And um, normally other people are anointed in the Bible. Priests were anointed for their job. Kings were anointed. But in a special sense, Jesus was anointed as our Messiah, wasn't he? So I want to go to... Daniel chapter 5, probably one of my most favourite chapters. And before we open up the book and go further, let us pray to the Lord to be with us again. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for um, the Sabbath day and we pray that you will bless us as we dig into Daniel chapter 5 to understand um, why this pagan man is given... Uh, titles that were also given to Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you know, Daniel chapter 5, for those who have done seminars, you know, the writing is on the wall, is a term that comes down to us even this day. Don't you all know what that means. If someone says to you, the writing was on the wall. This goes all the way back to Daniel chapter 5 and the King Belshazzar. And so I've entitled this or could be um, called Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, meets Belteshazzar, who was Daniel the prophet. Remember when uh, Daniel chapter 1, the king Nebuchadnezzar gave the four Hebrew children, 
they were only teenagers, uh, pagan names. And so Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, means Bel, which was Babylonian god, protect the king. Belteshazzar, the name given to um, Daniel, means Bel, their god, protect this, this man. Okay, so that's the difference. Though they're similar in name, they're very different in person, aren't they? And in, in Daniel uh, chapter 2, terminology, you know the statue? The head of gold, the chest of silver, the breast of bronze, legs of iron and feet of miry, iron, uh, miry clay and, and iron and clay. Well, the head of gold represented Babylon, didn't it? And we know in history that ruled from 626 to 539 BC, the first kingdom after the flood. Now, the word Babylon, the, the meaning of it means gate to God. And you're probably thinking, well, I thought it meant confusion. Well, the, the meaning of the letters of the word means gate to God, which has a good meaning. But because of the Tower of Babel, it came to have a, a meaning of confusion. You know, God confused the languages. So the story of Daniel 5, see the arrow? It points to the end of the Babylonian kingdom that time, uh, 539 BC, and the beginning of the Persian kingdom. Probably one of my favourite chapters. But here we go, the Tower of Babel just after the flood. Remember, God told the people to spread over the land, but they stayed in the one place. They built this big tower. They thought to reach up to heaven to protect them from the flood, which God promised not to do again. And so God confused their languages, didn't he? And so that's why the term, the word Babylon, came to mean confusion because of the history of the word. Much like the, the word Lucifer. I mean, nobody calls their children Lucifer, does it? Do they? Why? Because it's associated with the being who became Satan. But actually, Lucifer is a good meaning. It just means light bearer. But because it's associated with a being that fell from light bearer to Satan, the adversary, um, it came to have a bad meaning, doesn't it? So let's start at the beginning. Belshazzar, he was the son of Nabonidus and the grandson of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. You know, Nebuchadnezzar is the well-known name back in, in Daniel chapter 1, uh, 2, and then 3, and then uh, 4. And we come to chapter 5, and we have Belshazzar ruling in, um, in place of his father, Nabonidus. Nabonidus was still alive. He was out conquering other nations. Okay, So he was out on a siege uh, uh, conquering and he left his son as a co-regent, they call it, ruling in his place. Um, and then we read in verse 1, Daniel chapter 5, if you want to go there and follow through with us. Um, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and he drank wine with them. Just something on the, um, the kingdom. This was um, the plan of Babylon City, the city of Babylon. It was, 
it was the um, the wonder of the world. If if it was still around, it would be one of the world wonders of the world. Now they know now that um, they know now that the southern palace was where the arrow is. They figured out that's the southern palace, and that's where the only room big enough to hold a thousand people where it says that he held his party. And so um, you see all the list up the top, you can't read them from there, but there were all the temples that were within the the city. So these were a very religious people. They just didn't worship the true God. And if you want to see a picture, that is what um, Babylon looked like. And there is some time delay. Okay, so some, that's an artist's portrayal of what um, Babylon would have looked at. And they say the top of the, um, the gates. So once again, that's the palace would have been in there where the, near where the hanging gardens of Babylon, which was a, one of the wonders of the world. Now, while he held um, this party, there was some Medes outside and Persians had uh, an army under Cyrus and they were trying to work out how to take over the place. But Belshazzar wasn't the slightest bit worried. In fact, he was so um, not worried about it that he held a party. As the, the king of the Medes and Persians marched forward against Babylon in the springtime, the Babylonians encamped without their walls awaiting his coming. A battle was fought at a short distance in which the Babylonians were, beat, were defeated by the Persian king. But, um, but when they saw Cyrus, Cyrus was in charge of the Medes and Persians conquering nation after nation, that they were convinced that he would never stop and their turn would come at last. Here in the story is where their turn comes. And so... Verse 2 says, While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave the command to bring the gold and the silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which has been in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they bought the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. Notice the repetition. This is used in the original language for emphasis. Um, The writer Daniel is telling us, is reverting what a terrible event this was. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. What they basically did, they were having having a drunken party, a worldly party with lots of drinking of alcohol. And they, while they were doing that, they praised gods. And where did the vessels come from? Even worse. The vessels came from the temple, the temple of God in Jerusalem. Um, now, there's not many holy things as spoken of in the Bible. But the things of the sanctuary were holy, and uh, especially the vessels. That would have been on, see the green arrow? 
that's pointing towards the um, the vessels on the table of showbread, which was in the sides of the north. Looking at closely, these were the vessels that they would have been used. These were made, they were consecrated for the use of Yahweh, God, in his temple services. God allowed them to be taken um, by Nebuchadnezzar, but when Belshazzar used them, he put alcohol in these holy vessels of God and used them in a drunken party, that was too much. Okay, Belshazzar was basically um, rebelling against God. We'll go more into that later. What frightening event interrupted the celebration? Was the celebrations allowed to continue? No. Something happened. What was it? In verse 5, if you follow on, I don't know if you can read that, it says, Suddenly the fingers, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote upon the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was frightened, so much frightened that his legs began to weak and in his knees were knocking. Could you imagine? This, uh, it's almost like a cartoon, isn't it? Someone's knees knocking because they're so nervous. What facts can you find from this that shows that the message on the wall could um, not have been written by a human being? Very clear, isn't it? It just appeared and the fingers were not attached to a body. So just a part of a hand appeared. I think that would scare any. It would scare me. Would it scare you, if you were having a party and that that sort of thing happened? So the story goes. Verse seven: The king summoned the Babylon's wise men. I don't know why he did that because the previous chapter, um, or they from chapters two to four, they weren't able to do anything. Right. And the, the questions they were asked were getting easier and easier. And to this point, all they had to do was read the writing on the wall and interpret it. They couldn't do that. And so Belshazzar offered them to be clothed in purple and have a gold chain around his neck. And he would be made the third ruler in the kingdom. Why the third? Because he himself was the second, remember? And that, um, yeah, so King Nabonidus was the um, first ruler. Belshazzar was the second as his son and then he was going to make the wise men the third ruler in the kingdom. And so none of the wise men were able to read. If you want to get, have your Bible there in verse 8, we'll go through it, even though it's not on the screen. So verse 8, then all the kings... Wise men came in. They could not read the writing on the wall or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified. And his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. Then the queen came in, summarising, the queen came in and said, listen, there's a, a, a prophet from old time, Daniel. So notice Daniel was not in the, in the hall. He wasn't having a part of this drunken party but he had to be called in um, to the banquet hall. And then Daniel, 
he was asked, and so but King Belshazzar offered him the same thing. Verse 16, the king says, If you can read the writing and tell me what it means, you can be clothed in purple and have gold chain around your neck and be made the third in the kingdom. Then Daniel, but Dan, what does Daniel say? He says, you can keep your rewards to yourself. I don't really want this because he recognised what the message said. Yeah, verse, verse 17, he says, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, Daniel says, I will read the writing and tell you what it means. Then the story goes on in verse uh, 21. So Daniel reviews his grandfather's humbling conversion experience, um, which was in chapter 4. If you remember where Nebuchadnezzar went mad because he gave all the greatness of himself to, um, to making the kingdom. God humbled him and he went insane for seven years, if you remember that. So Daniel reminded him, Belshazzar, of this experience. Then he says... But, in verse 22, key text, he says, But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. That's important, isn't it? So Belshazzar understood more than the way he was living. He had no excuse for his rebellion. As Nebuchadnezzar, who was converted to the true God, as Belshazzar was growing up, he would have heard the stories of his conversion um, on his knee, right? So when Belshazzar was growing up. So Bel Daniel is rebuking him and saying, you haven't learned this. We need to learn. What do we learn from this? We need to learn from our parents and grandparents and not make the same mistakes, don't we? Belshazzar was making the same mistakes. Instead, verse 23 says, you have set up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets, the holy goblets from the temple brought to you. And you had your nobles, your wives, your concubines, and you drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron and wood and stone, which is not Yahweh, it's other gods, which cannot hear or understand, but you did not honour the God who holds in his life, hands, your life. I mean, it, when you understand that every breath we make is given to us by, by God. It's only foolishness to rebel against him, isn't it? Therefore, Daniel, he, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. So here we see the doom pronounced about, upon Belshazzar and Babylon. This is the inscription that was written. Many, many tekel parson. Okay, so just four words. Four words were written on the wall that the wise men couldn't read in their own language. Why? Because it required interpretation. So Daniel, in his explanation, gives a commentary into what it says. And you had to understand God to some degree to be able to interpret it. Many, so the, the words mean basically numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. It's a judgment language. Um, many. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. So Daniel's adding the commentary to what he understood. Tekel, you have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. 
Be careful, brothers and sisters. We are being weighed in the balances. I hope we're living up to what we know. Belshazzar didn't. Uh, Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck. Remember, Daniel didn't want this. And he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, however, Belshazzar, as the hand pronounced, um, king of Babylon was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Darius the Mede and Cyrus, king of Persia, they were working together in this. So how was this um, fulfilled? The fall of Babylon, what we just saw in, in the Bible, Daniel chapter 5, represents the fall of Babylon through Belshazzar's eyes from the summer palace. But there's another part of the Bible that tells of the fall of Babylon through Cyrus's eyes. Now Cyrus, see the river Euphrates? They were camped outside the city and they had to figure a way um, how to, to get into the city because it was fortified, those huge walls, and it wasn't easy. No one had been able to do it up until that time. There's the summer palace where they were, and the men were just outside the river. So now we're going to look at the fall of Babylon through the victor's eyes. And this is from, we have to go to the book of Isaiah to see the different viewpoint of the fall of Babylon. And then we'll see why it's so important. Isaiah 44 verse 27. Remember the beginning of my sermon? And I talked about the Lord is my shepherd and he is the Messiah or the anointed one. Have a look what it says about in Isaiah about Cyrus. Isaiah 44, 27, speaking of the river Euphrates that ran down through the city, it says, God who says to the deep, be dry and I will dry up your rivers. That says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, thou shall be built and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus said the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Cyrus is given the same title as Jesus was in Daniel 9, the same word, Meshiach, where we get Messiah, is the word used for anointed here. Given to a pagan king, he's not even a believer in the Jewish religion. So what is it about a pagan king, where he's called my shepherd by God, and the anointed one? The, the key is actually in the text. Um, God uses him. Um, Thus says to the Lord, to the anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two leave gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Well, underneath the river, as the river run beside the, the, the city, it had uh, openings for the water to go in. But there were big uh, steel gates or iron gates to stop people from going in. And... Here, Isaiah is saying that the, the gate shall not be 
closed. Okay, they were so confident um, of keeping them out. But what about the river? Verse 2 in Isaiah 45, I will go before you, make the crooked places straight. I'll break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. Here it's saying that God will go before Cyrus, preparing the way for him to enter Babylon. Isn't that amazing? How did that happen? Well, remember the verse says, the Lord who says to the deep, be dry and I will dry up your rivers. Now there's two thoughts on this. You might have heard in the evangelistic series that that Cyrus diverted the rivers. But that was by a historian called Herodotus. And he is not very reliable. He said other things that haven't added up. There's another thought that says that there was a very particularly dry season that year. And the river was actually at a low level. Because remember the text says that the Lord will dry up the river. It doesn't say Cyrus will divert it. So you can choose whatever one you you like. Um, But either way, Cyrus went down the drying or drier riverbed, went went up through the open gates into the city where Belshazzar was having his drunken party. And let's read it from Isaiah. See, I will, st- in Isaiah 13, verse 17, it says, I will stir up against them, Babylon, the Medes, who do not care for silver, have no delight in gold, their bowels will strike down the young men, they will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms. The pride and glory of the Babylonians will be overthrown by God. He doesn't say Medes and Persians. When God has numbered and weighed a kingdom or a person, then their fall happens very quickly. They will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. How fast was Sodom and Gomorrah uh, taken? Like that, wasn't it? Fire and brimstone came down and you could imagine it wouldn't have taken long for the city and the people to be destroyed. And what else does it say in Isaiah? The Babel, the ba- she, notice that, that um, Isaiah calls Babylon in feminine terms now. Um, she will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. There no nomad um, will pitch their tents, no shepherds will rest their flocks, but desert creatures will lie there. Jackals, owls, wild goats, Hyenas will inhabit her stronghold. If you were to go there today, you would see that's been fulfilled. Now, Saddam Hussein, Babylon is actually in the modern area of northern Iraq. Um, Saddam Hussein started rebuilding the city. But he, as you know his history, he was taken out um, by the Americans. And so his rebuilding program stopped. So partly rebuilt... But it still fulfilled the biblical text. And interestingly enough, Arabians will not spend the night there. Just as the text says. Just as the text says. So, is God true to his word? Why is it? I have a question for you. If Babylon is finished, way back in 
537 BC, a long time ago. And God prophesied in, by Isaiah, she will never be inhabited again, right? And that's the way it is now. Why is it that in the end times, Babylon becomes a major force against God? In the, two of the four angels' messages given to the whole world is a message against Babylon. Have a look at this. Revelation 14, 8. Another angel followed them saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine, using Belshazzar language, she made all nations drink of the wine of her, the wrath of her fornication. Go to Revelation 18, the fourth angel's message. It says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partaker of her sins and you receive not of her plagues. Come out of what? Babylon is uninhabited. Do, are we to believe that this place called Babylon in northern Iraq is going to be rebuilt? And it's going to become a major player in end time uh, end time prophecy by attacking God's people, us or Christians Are we, is that how we to understand this no, so how are we to understand Isaiah and, and John the Revelator using Old Testament city called Babylon like this here we come to a very important hermeneutical principle that which is literal in the Old Testament names of places and people etc takes on a figurative meaning in the New Testament understanding that will save us from a very important uh, from the possibility of misinterpreting Old Testament prophecies literally and looking for Turkey or, or some other um, country to fulfill prophecy. So Babylon. Babylon in the Old Testament was a literal city. How are we to understand Babylon? Remember Babylon came to mean confusion. The issue nowadays is not about cities. It's not about people called Israel. It's about... the. Um, the spiritual meaning. What does Babylon mean in the New Testament? Remember, in the city I showed you all the temples. So Babylon was a very religious peoples. They had numbers of temples within the gates. Babylon represents fallen church, fallen religion. And if you go to uh, Jeremiah 6 2, he says, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a delicate and beautiful woman. See in the picture we have a woman, the true church of God, dressed in white, representing the righteousness of Christ and the pure woman who follows the true gospel. However, there's a harlot woman in Babylon, um, the impure woman. Dressed in scarlet. What does red mean in the Bible? All figurative meaning. Red represents sin, does it not? The whole, almost the whole of uh, Revelation 17 and 18 is devoted to Babylon. The great prostitute, let's go through a little bit of it, that sits by many waters. 
What does water represent if you go to... uh, People. People, nations. So once again, we have this um, figurative meaning. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, just like Belshazzar. Remember Belshazzar? He took the cups from the temple and is drinking wine in it. All having figurative meanings in the New Testament. The wine representing the maddening doctrines of the apostate church. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. Verse 5. The name written on her forehead was a mystery named Babylon the Great. Uh, The mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. The woman you saw is that great city that rules over the kings of the earth, Babylon. Okay, so we have a spiritual meaning for Old Testament literal um, city and people. Let's have a look at a little bit at Revelation chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit and every unclean bird and detestable animal. For all nations have drunk of her maddening wine, of adulteries. Um, The kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich through her excessive luxuries. And I saw another voice coming from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. So we don't have to come out of a literal place, do we? What do we have to come out of? How would we understand that figuratively? Come out of sin. Remember, she's dressed in scarlet. Scarlet represents sin. God is calling us to come out of sin. Come out of her, my people, so you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. You know the plagues, the seven last plagues at the end of time are called Babylon's plagues. For her sins have reached up to heaven as God has remembered her crimes. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as a queen. Can you think of a denomination that sits like that? Very powerful. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Now, how soon was Belshazzar's kingdom of Babylon taken? In one night, right? Listen to this. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her, will conquer her, just like Belshazzar. Um, Death, mourning, and famine. So the pure woman. And it even says, but why is there only two? I mean, isn't there hundreds, literally thousands of denominations? There's the pure woman in the Bible, and then there's Babylon. Well, Babylon means more than just the apostate church. Um, it represents all those who worship Satan under, guise, under the guise of worshipping God. It says that verse 8, Revelation 17, verse, All the, that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, of the Lamb slain to the foundation of the world. Why? Why should everyone begin worshipping this beast? It's not fulfilled yet, because we're going to see 
a lot of miracles. Through the miracles that he was allowed to do, he will deceive the whole world except for a few who have their minds focused on the word of God and the truth, the truth of God. And that's happening right now, isn't it? Everywhere the papacy goes, you see these Protestants, they, every person there represents the leader of Protestant denominations. So the, here we sing the, the Counter-Reformation. All the churches, which originally in the 16th century left the Catholic Church, they're now coming back. The Counter-Reformation. So has she changed? No. She hasn't changed, but the Protestants have. They've lowered their standard until they will join with her. Now, if we go to Revelation 16, verse 12, under the sixth plague, um, we see something very interesting here. It says, the, remember the fall of Babylon. And the sixth angel poured out the vial upon the great river Euphrates. Remember the river that ran beside and underneath the, the city of Babylon, which gave her her strength because they had drinking water? Well, this is how John describes um, something very important. And the water, uh, the, the sixth angel poured his vial upon the great river of Euphrates, and the water was dried up, and the way of the kings of the east... That literally means the, the sun rising might be prepared. Now the kings of the east represented Cyrus and, and the Medes and the Persians, right? But someone else is represented as the king of the east. In the Bible, there are 30 or more texts that speak about the son of man coming from the east. And so the first one in... Um, Revelation 17, it says, He says unto me, The waters which you saw where the whore hit sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So the, the strength of an institution is the people that follow her. And this institution has most of the world. It's the greatest denomination um, that is in the world. On the other point, speaking about the kings of the east, Matthew 24, 27, So just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes into the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man is. So John, the revelator, he used the fall of Babylon to represent not just the fall of the original Babylon, but he used the language to talk about the second advent of the Lord. That's what he used to describe this event. Isn't that amazing? So literally... Daniel 5 refers literally to the fall of Babylon up and, and using Daniel 2 as the, the statue. Right where the, the gold finishes and the Medo-Persians begin. Um, and secondly, figuratively, to refer to the end of the world. So Babylon is understood in this way. But you know, ultimately, ultimately, we're not saved in denominations as I close. We can belong to the true church and still be in Babylon. You know that? 
we can still be confused. We can still be living um, with the devil. And so I'd like us to just um, live our life, surrender to the Lord anything that's, that's troubling us and um, live for him. So Babylon, I believe, when it's, God says to come out of Babylon, I believe it's a call to separate each of us individually from any sins that may be separating us from God. Um, in 2 Corinthians 7.1, uh, Paul summarises his chapter. He says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, which describes, you know, we, we read where Revelation 17, the harlot is involved in all filthy practices, both business and spiritual. And God is asking us to separate ourselves from him, from those, so we can have an, uh, a connected relationship with him that will give us confidence to be received in glory to his eternal kingdom. Thank you for coming today. God bless you. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the lesson of Daniel 5. I pray that you'll help us all see the need to not be like Belshazzar and take holy things um, too lightly to the destruction of, of our souls, Lord. He took the golden cups dedicated to you and did abominable things in them, took them lightly. I pray that you'll help us see that the importance of being faithful and taking salvation and the things of salvation seriously. And so as we leave this place of worship, I pray that you'll be with us the rest of this Sabbath day. Help us to see also that this day, the whole day, is holy, just like your vessels. Help us to be a chosen vessel also unto you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was made available by the Dundas Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page. Dundas Seventh-day Adventist Church.
grasp what is written. And doubts crowd your mind, and it's too hard to trust his word. Have faith, God will show you the Spread the flowing seas abroad and build the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at his command and all the stars obey. I sing the goodness of the Lord that filled the earth with food. He formed the creatures with his word and then pronounced them good. Lord, how thy wonders are displayed where'er I turn my eye. If I survey the ground I tread or gaze upon the sky, there's not a plant or flower below but makes thy glories known. And clouds arise and tempests blow by order from thy throne. While all that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care. And everywhere that man can be, thou God art present there. That was Acapeldridge with I Sing the Mighty Power of God. Before that, we heard Fountain View Academy with Faith Unlocks the Door. And coming up next, Sandra Entiman will sing Come Thou Fount, Come Thou King. Feels 
Welcome to God's Favourite Shepherds, a collection of 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters, with many of the stories ending with a short quiz. Listen now to the author of God's Favourite Shepherds, Bill Ackland. Today I have another biblical character to tell you about. You may or may not have heard of Tabitha, as fleet as a gazelle and busy for God. And the story is based on Acts chapter 9. As long as I can remember, I have had a needle in my hand. I am sure I was encouraged in this by my mother. My father was in the clothing trade and mother was always sewing, sewing, sewing. She did beautiful work. I recall almost back to when I could first walk, watching her hands, working with needle and thread, as swiftly as a gazelle, helping to add to the family income. Joppa is a very old port city on the eastern shore of the Great Sea. This sea is so large that many sailors have set their sails to travel toward the setting sun, and they have never been seen again. Perhaps they have fallen off the edge of the earth or gone to some other place we don't know about. In any event, I am so glad that our family lived here, even though my father and mother have now passed to their rest. Predictably, I have taken over much of the family business, sewing every day and dealing in cloth. My husband and I now live in the family home on the street named the Street of Palms, only a short walk to the port. I am glad that I live here because two years ago I heard from some believers in Jesus Christ who lived in Lydda the wonderful news that he was the Son of God. He had come to this world to save us from our sins and to tell us about our Heavenly Father. He was born into the Jewish nation and I am a Gentile but that does not matter to him for he told his followers to go into all the world and tell people about him. As I said, I am so glad they obeyed his command. Some years ago, I became sick. It was an illness that was going around at the time, probably brought back by the sailors from some foreign country. Many people were sick, but most of them recovered. I had the strangest and yet the most wonderful experience. I died. But that was not the wonderful part because... I cannot recall the moment the death grasped me in its sharp fangs. In fact, though I was told I was dead for about a day, it seemed merely a moment. In the time I was not living, two strong men ran over to Lydda several hours away to tell the Apostle Peter, who was there at the time, that I had died, and would he please come urgently to see if he could do something for me. We had heard that he had healed people by the power of Jesus and perhaps the Saviour would bring me back to life. They told him how much I had done to help people because of my involvement in the clothing trade and that my death would be a serious blow to the work of the gospel in Joppa. When I had found out later what they had said, I was very much embarrassed for I only did what I enjoyed doing. Peter, bless his heart, came straight away to Joppa with the men. He went up to the room where my body had been placed and prayed earnestly to God that he would raise me back to life if this were in his great plan for me. 
I am told that Peter then stood up from his prayer, looked at me and said to me, Tabitha, get up from your bed. Amazingly, wonderfully, life immediately infused every part of me. That was the part that I do remember, for I had never felt that way before, nor have I since. Peter courteously extended me his hand to help me to my feet, and then he presented me to all the people who had gathered at my home to mourn my passing. Now rejoicing filled the house and extended to the neighbourhood. It wasn't long before the news of this wonderful happening was told all over Joppa. Many people came to believe on the Lord Jesus because of his power in the life of one they knew so well. Since then, I have never ceased to thank my God every day for a new life to live for him. He has kept me from pain in my hands that many of the women have who do similar work as I do. How good is God? You may be more familiar with my Greek name, Dorcas. And now I have a little quiz for you. What other name was Tabitha known by? What type of work did she do for her living? What town did she live in? What apostle was used by God to bring Tabitha back to life? And where was Peter at the time Tabitha died? You've been listening to God's Favoured Shepherds, a book with 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters. If you have any comments or questions, or to obtain a copy of this book, give us a call within Australia on 02-4973-3456 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.